Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa program. Welcome back to Africa Aware. It's great to have you listening. We are very lucky to present another special conversation in our series as part of the 20th anniversary of the Africa program. On this episode, I am honoured to host Her Excellency Dr. Joyce Banda, President of the Republic of Malawi from 2012 to 2014. In taking that role, Her Excellency was Malawi's first female president and Africa's second. Over the course of the interview, we discussed democratic advancement and backsliding in Africa, female leadership on the continent, and African agency and global leadership from Africa in uncertain times. We hope you enjoy listening. Before becoming president of Malawi, Dr. Banda served as a member of parliament, minister for gender and child welfare and foreign minister and vice president of the Republic of Malawi. While serving as minister for gender and child welfare, Dr. Banda championed the enactment of the Prevention of Domestic Violence Bill in 2006, which provided a legal framework for the elimination and prevention of all forms of violence against women and girls. A recipient of more than 15 international accolades, including the Hunger Project Africa Prize for Leadership for the Sustainable End of Hunger, shared with President Joaquim Chisano of Mozambique in 1997, Her Excellency Dr. Banda is a strong advocate for women and girls' emancipation and empowerment, and a prominent civil rights campaigner. She founded the Joyce Banda Foundation International, which guides projects that range from empowering women to providing for orphans. It is an absolute honour to welcome Her Excellency Joyce Banda onto the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your Excellency, over the last couple of years, we have seen democratic backsliding across the continent, which of course has been disappointing. However, we have also seen beacons of light with regards to democratic advancement, in particular with elections in Malawi, for example. What must be done to help facilitate the democratic environments across Africa and prevent democratic backsliding? My Position on that matter, my response would be that we must first recognize that 60% of the people of Africa are young. And therefore, in whatever we do, we must remember that. I am of the opinion that, yes, democracies in Africa have backslided, but we must also take stock of the successes. I have said all over the world that Africa is doing better than most. It's just that we don't know how to amplify our achievements and tell the world. We are the only continent right now that has had six female presidents. Liberia, Central African Republic, Mauritius, Malawi, Ethiopia, and now Tanzania. The two are still in office. I know of continents with democracy of 200 years that are still trying to get one woman into state house that have only got 18% of women in their parliament, that have not yet achieved equal pay for equal work. So Africa has a country with the highest number of women in parliament in the world, 62%. These are achievements that we must talk about. And we must say that the reason why we have been able to get our men to understand there must be something the world can learn from us. We must be doing something right. It's not accidental. But in my opinion, because we've always been leaders, African women were leaders before colonization. In fact, they say that it's colonization that delayed us because some of those that colonized us did not have structures in their own nations where women were fitted. So they didn't know what to do when they got there. 
And what did we do when our brothers, Kwame Nkrumah, Nyerere, Mandela, Kamuzbanda, rose to fight for self-rule? Our women rose to the occasion and joined the fight. So we've always been there. For me, it is how we must now sit and look at what is it that we can do to further strengthen our democracies. We have found, as women of Africa, that we must not confront our men or fight them or scream on the streets because that's not in our nature. We are master negotiators. And therefore, we must sit and engage our men. We've done well in doing that, respecting one another. President after president on the continent of Africa are now appointing 50% of their cabinet being women. In my country alone, my president has appointed 42% and 50-50 in the judiciary. We must take stock of those successes. But we have challenges. We have challenges that while there are some of the economic failures and crises that we are passing through are beyond our control, but our leadership on the continent must acknowledge what I said earlier. 60% of our people are young. They are crying for opportunities. So my request, my, my ask would be that we have a lot to be proud of, but we have also got a lot to do. And our leaders on the continent must understand this fact, that until and unless they create opportunities for that 60%, for our boys to feel that their countries are paying attention, that the resources, the natural resources we have in our countries that are God-given to us as gifts, the leaders understand that they don't belong to them, but they belong to the people, and the people are seeing the benefits. We shall strengthen our democracies. We shall definitely strengthen our democracies. But our young people, as long as they continue to be desperate, to scream, to die on the Mediterranean, to die in the Middle East, to fight and kill one another, democracies are not going to be strengthened. Out of the question. What an incredible response, Your Excellency, and one that I'm sure our audience will be incredibly inspired by. You mentioned African women. And this is, of course, an incredibly close topic to your heart, but to our heart as well at Chatham House and the Africa Programme, because we see development linked to equality. Now, as one of the first female heads of state in Africa, what must be done to support female leaders, not just in politics, but across all sectors? To, to quote a question or a statement that you once put out there, today's leaders must clear a path for the female leaders of tomorrow. My question to you is, how do they clear that path? I have always advocated for us as women to organize ourselves, to mobilize ourselves, to raise our voices on behalf of those that cannot raise their voices. That's across the board. But for me as a senior leader, together with my fellow senior leaders who have been there and back, must take it's a moral obligation for us to give our shoulders, to create space to hold the hands of the young leaders coming up, to support them, to empower them, to fight with them, to make sure that they are ready for leadership. Maybe because it's my field, I've always said economic empowerment of women is key to social and political empowerment. And our women will become leaders, will participate in leadership when they are economically empowered. Because most of us come from countries where you have to fight and compete on equal ground. And if you don't have the political muscle, the political ability to, to compete equally, to go even into parliament, we shall not succeed. 
Number two, I feel that we must also ensure that our women are getting education, education all the way to tertiary. I have read and believe and I researched that leaders are born. They are born with only 30% leadership traits. There's such a big debate because the leadership building is a multi-million dollar industry. So some people will want to suppress that. They don't even want to talk about it. But I believe that leaders are born with 30% leadership traits. And that as society, we must add only the 70% by sending this girl child to school, by mentoring her, by sending her all the way to university in order for her to be ready to assume leadership, not only political, but even in companies and everywhere. My problem now as a rights activist is what about the African girl child that is locked up in abject poverty? that has the 30% leadership traits. You only see it in a mosque or a church. When you go, you find this girl is leading choirs. Why? Is leading leadership in the village. 30% that went to waste. It is our duty. We must take responsibility to make sure that we mobilize even those girls. We look out for the girls that have been born with this gift, that are ready, that if supported, they'll take leadership. So I have written a book titled From Day One, and I'm looking at the life of an African, typical African girl child from day one to age 10. There's so much that happens, even if she's born with that 30% leadership traits that will stand in her way of assuming leadership later. So we must be mindful of the fact that we need to pay attention to age zero to age 10. I'm looking at how she'll be denied an opportunity to go to school because the brother must go. I'm looking at her being overworked. I'm looking at her being defiled. And I'm looking at her being initiated in harmful traditions. If she's in Ghana, it is the troika she's offered to the high priest and she goes at 17 and she never comes back. You can research this. It was abolished in Ghana many years ago, but we have still got um, uh, over a thousand in the bush. If you go to East Africa, it is a mutilation. When she's nine, ten years, she's taken for mutilation. She's psychologically destroyed. If it is Cameroon, it is breast ironing. They get hot rods and and burn her on the chest so she, she's not uh, sexually active. Early in life. If it is Malawi, then you, you heard about the highly publicized case of Eric Niva who admitted that she's recruited to do cleansing for young girls at nine, ten years old. That is what we must fight. Our responsibility is to make sure the girl child gets equal opportunity to go to school, that she's protected about the adults who take advantage of her, but we must abolish some of these harmful traditions. And I'm, I just want to applaud those countries on the continent that have already abolished those. Now, for example, I was giving the, the example of Ghana. They, they, they abolished Troika, but it happens in other West African countries as well. The whole issue of cleansing, this Erika Niva in Malawi went to court, to, to, to jail for two years and, and was released. So how far, how long must they stay in jail? The sentences... All those things have to happen in order for us to protect the girl child. We are talking about the future woman leader. That is the period where we must pay attention. We must form networks. Right now, we have formed what we call the African Leaders Network by UN Women and African Union. And now we are there 
and it's, it's an intergenerational organization with two distinct committees of younger women and this age. Uh, so I am in my committee with President Samia and President Saleh of Ethiopia, President Catherine Panzer and Ellen Selif, myself, and our deputy president, Joyce Mujuru. In last April, I convened together with UN Women a big conference in Malawi where we brought those leaders together and said, let's talk to our younger women. And I insisted that at that conference, we also create space for 10 to 15-year-olds to have their own conversation. And our first lady was the guest of honor there. Plan International funded that. We must listen. Like I said about young, young men on the continent, when they are talking, we must listen to what they are saying and do something about it. And even these young ladies, we must pay attention. Our rural women must speak. We must pay attention. And the senior leaders like me must stand prepared to support young women leaders coming up. That way, when we are well organized, nobody is going to ignore us. Stephanie, and once again, a really, really fantastic response to my question. I think just if we were to clip that and write it as an article, it would have much more policy impact than many of the things that, that may have been written on the topic itself. And now to bring it into another area, and, and I think one thing you mentioned specifically was African leadership and how the world should look at Africa. You know, at Chatham House, especially in our anniversary, it's our 20th anniversary, of course, one area of focus for us is African agency. And it's often misunderstood as, you know, African solutions for African problems. It's not. It's African solutions for world problems because the world can learn from the African continent, the world can learn from African leaders. How do you interpret an African agency? How do you interpret our operation or our method to ensure that African policy is seen at the forefront of developing other policies in other parts of the world? I think our greatest weakness has been to believe that we are not better, that they are better than us, whoever. Yeah, so we look at others as doing better, but I have said again and again that there's so much that the world can learn from us. Even when they ask, how did you manage to get six presidents? I said, no, in fact, they're saying, those who have done research, those that just came in for transitional purposes, we are together 22. So we've done well. Other parts of the world haven't managed. What is it that we did? And my explanation has been simple. We do it the right way. We engage our men. We don't castigate or antagonize them. It is when we work together, men and women, that we achieve so much. So this idea of having matches for women, shouting on behalf of women, and then you're women and you're talking to, ourselves, to yourselves, doesn't work. We work together with our men. The good news is that our African men know that we've been leaders before. Yes, we had the queen in the Asentawa of Ghana who refused when people came to colonize. They, she, she said no. In fact, she had to be to, to die in exile. In my own country, Namlangen was a warrior who put her army together to fight the Portuguese when they were demarcating her land, and she was slaughtered there. So we have been leaders before. So what is it that we can show the world? We can teach the world that works. For me, what works is not confrontation, it is engagement. Engaging our men, knowing that they respect us, and we respect them back. That's number one. Number two is we don't talk about our successes. We don't tell anybody. While the whole world features Africa as a place of darkness and war and fighting and hunger and killing one another, why is it that we don't feature the success stories about ourselves? 
Yeah, because there are so many. Those of us who are living in Africa are so many. But number three, I'm saying here and I've said all over the world, international organizations must come and work in Africa. International organizations, international NGOs must come and support us. But they must remember that it is Africans who know best what they need. It is Africans who have articulated so well what must happen to change their situation. So there's no reason and there's no need to ignore indigenous NGOs, African NGOs, local NGOs that can do the same job if only they are empowered. I have found great successes when they come and they partner with you. I've just told Chatham House this afternoon how I am working with an American organization in Malawi to empower a community of 3,000 families. We don't have the means, but we have the knowledge. We know what must happen. Indigenous, on the ground. So we have partnered. They respect us and we respect them. If only that could happen again and again across the continent, we could change that continent. But when people come and think they can do it alone, and a lot of resources are invested, and then 20 years later we are hearing Africans can't be assisted because they don't know what to do. Yeah, so we've been throwing money there for, forever. It doesn't work. It, it will not work because you, you didn't work together. And finally, it is that our leadership, us, all of us, including me, must realize that Africa is a very, very rich continent. And nobody must make us forget that. Because of that, we must take responsibility. That if God sends us to state house, we are the custodian of that wealth. But that wealth doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the people that gave us the job. Therefore, it is that we must now make sure nobody is stealing our wealth because it is being stolen every day. Nobody is stealing our wealth from anywhere else. We are mobilizing and using it wisely, but ensuring that we demonstrate to the household that you are living a better life because you are born in a country that is rich. I don't know any country in Africa that has nothing. In Malawi, they have just discovered that we have the largest deposits of rutile in the world. So my hope would be that any leader that comes in the future, when we begin to exploit those resources, a villager will, should know. I am living like this because my country is rich, because I've got rutile. That's what has happened in Botswana. In Botswana, a farmer will find land, will go to government, and government will bring a tractor, plow the plant, give him or her uh, seed inputs. At the end of the day, if he has good harvest, he will know. I am this way. I am living a better life because my country has diamonds. Wow. Once again, it has truly been an honour to interview you, Dr. Banda. I'd like to end by picking up on something you said in relation to leaders providing their shoulders for Africa to advance. Now, I would like to say that as young people, we stand on the shoulders of giants that came before us, and you are one of them. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe on the platform you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review, as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye. <laughs>